0: Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Samuel Washington, assistant professor of urology at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF. The good doctor completed his undergraduate education at the University of California, Davis, with a bachelor's degree in genetics. He then undertook his medical school at UCSF where he also completed his Urology Residency and Urologic Oncology Fellowship. Dr. Washington has received research grants from, among others, the UCSF Academy of Medical Educators and the UCSF Center for Aging in Diverse Communities through the National Institute of Aging. Samuel is a member of the American Urological Association and the Society for Urologic Oncology. He's published numerous peer-reviewed papers and sits on multiple committees and editorial boards. His clinical interests include the diagnosis and management of genitourinary malignancies and using minimally invasive laparoscopic robotic approaches for surgery. His research has focused on prostate cancer outcomes and a focus also on health services and cancer outcome disparities with urinary malignancies. Sam tells me that he's a novice gardener and as he lives in California and had to go out shopping for some lights to grow plants indoors, people were a little bit suspicious about what species he might be growing, but he tells me it was lettuce. So Dr. Samuel Washington, Sam, welcome to the EMJ podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, you're absolutely welcome. It's a delight, and I'm looking forward to learning lots. So let's start at the beginning. What was your inspiration that took you into urology and specifically urologic oncology?
1: Yeah, it was actually a little backwards. Uh, in high school, I was lucky enough to get exposure to oncology first. Um, so a friend of the family was a breast oncologist. And at the age of 17, took me into the operating room to see a procedure to remove a breast lump. And that kind of hooked me on surgery and oncology. It wasn't until medical school that I got exposed to urology and realized, okay, content, disease process fit, and then personality fits as well. So urologic oncology was kind of the marrying of those two aspects. So you said personality fits. That's
0: intriguing. You know, I believe that there is truth in stereotype. And, (laughs) you know, I think back to my medical school days and, you know, I discovered there was one pathologist who I I did an elective study with, who, you know, he was very different from all the pathologists that I'd met up to that point, then discovered that actually he'd wanted to be a surgeon, but he had a bad back um, and couldn't stand. Mm. Uh, So tell me about the urologic personality
1: well i think for one we can never take ourselves too seriously given the area of the body that we're working with so there's there's always a joke to be had right assuming it's the appropriate time um but in this area it's just a great group of people always focused on helping patients as with many other disciplines but the added jokes that are sometimes less mature than others help <laughs> in the hard times. We'll put it that way. Uh, so it's a great mix. But
0: you know something? You're absolutely right. I have some uh, some old friends who are urologists, and in fact, I have a slide collection that one of them gave me. None of which I can show anymore because <laughs> the. Politically incorrect. But yeah, good point, (laughs) good point, Sam. So let's get into the meat of it. You you recently published an article entitled Development and External Validation of a Machine Learning Model for Prediction of Lymph Node Metastasis in Patients with Prostate Cancer. So we're hearing a lot these days about machine learning algorithms. But just assume that some of our audience have no idea what that is. Tell us more about the research. And, you know, please explain the model and the results.
1: Yeah, this was a great collaborative effort with my colleagues in radiation oncology at UCSF. And it started as just the idea, can we use an algorithm, a computer, to better estimate people's risk of having cancer within their lymph nodes and thus us needing to do a lymph node dissection, so removing the fatty tissue from around the prostate at the time of surgery. This discussion evolved over time, and we got a postdoc involved, we got other faculty involved, and we were able to actually have a kind of practice or training cohort of over 20,000 patients to train this algorithm, this computer program, and then a second cohort from a different institution of over 1,300 patients to see how well it performed in a completely different group of patients. So we combined, we fed this program different aspects or data points about the patient their clinical information pathologic information as well as kind of the standard information that most prognostic tools use and we saw that it performed better than a lot of the reference models the models that had been around for years it gave us a much better or more accurate way to identify people who are at risk of needing a lymph node dissection because they're at higher risk of having cancer in their lymph nodes and ultimately It helps us identify those who may not see a clear benefit from a pelvic lymph node dissection based on our algorithm, which is exciting. It's a step forward to use all of the computational strength that we have in institutions and in the world right now to improve care, which is always exciting.
0: Uh, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this, aren't we, about uh, the use of of machine learning algorithms and and AI to help guide decision making. I, I don't think that you and I as professionals are going to be shouldered to the side anytime soon. So given your work on cancer patient outcomes, talk to us a bit about how dietary and lifestyle factors, as well as treatment choices, influence outcomes, but start with dietary and lifestyle.
1: Yeah, I'd say, first of all, that there is a relationship. I know in clinic, when I see patients, oftentimes After we discuss the diagnosis, they often ask, okay, what could I be doing differently? Or what did I do that caused me to get this? And I have to always tell them, it's nothing you did directly. But there are things you can do as we discuss treatments. And that's really where diet lifestyle come into play because these are modifiable factors for the patient to offer them more control in a setting in which they may not feel like they have much. So it's very important to understand what aspects of diet, Dietary supplements may be helpful based on the literature and those that may not. So they're avoiding spending hundreds of dollars on prostate vitamins, for example, that may not help at all. But they are focusing on increasing their exercise, increasing the amount of leafy greens and kind of avoiding excessive amounts of red meat that they may have before.
0: Right. What what about um, lycopenes, tomatoes? I seem to
1: recall reading that a long time ago. Yeah, there's a few different things that are being looked at right now. They seem to be helpful. But what I tell people is essentially whatever their doctor was telling them for a heart healthy diet will probably help the prostate as well. And that seems to help a lot of people understand where it's headed in terms of diet changes.
0: Right. Okay. All right. So you've, uh, you've also conducted research on healthcare disparities in patients with malignancies of the genital urinary system. And how racial and ethnic differences impact diagnosis and treatment of prostate cancer. Talk to us about this. There are higher rates of prostate cancer among certain groups, but some of it is about access in the American healthcare system, perhaps?
1: Yeah, it's an area that has been discussed for many decades. And unfortunately, we see similar observations over the decades. Some groups have a difficult time getting screened for prostate cancer, for example have a hard time getting evaluated through the system, getting quality care, or even seeing a urologist. And these are things that chip away at the potential survival benefit that could be had when they're initially uh, screened. Tell us, who are the groups and, and what are, what are the issues? Yeah, so when we talk about prostate cancer, the group with the largest burden relative to their proportion of the population would be African-American men. So we know they're 1.6 times more likely to carry this burden or mortality risk of prostate cancer compared to other groups. But depending on where you're looking, multiple times less likely to s- receive screening, guideline concordant care, curative treatment. So all of these factors combine together to have this larger burden in a smaller proportion of the population relative to the disparity. And,
0: and, but aside from the access issue, which of course is, and I'm going to get back to that in, in a little bit, which is financially driven, I, I presume. Are there other elements? are You know, um, if men do receive the proper care, do they get the same outcomes?
1: Yeah. So thankfully, there have been a few studies looking within our veteran population in which the the we have an, an entire kind of comprehensive system of healthcare for our vets, um, as well as clinical trials. So in these settings where men, the financial barriers are removed, some of the other societal barriers are removed. We see that outcomes are equivalent or near equivalent um, between black men and white counterparts. So it gives us an ideal to strive for outside of those controlled settings.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, Sam, I, I'm going to come at this. Um, it's a slightly touchy subject, but I think we've got to broach it, and it's interesting. So I, I, I trained in the United Kingdom. I worked in the UK and then was recruited to the United States and spent many years there. Both countries do some things really well, and I'm not knocking America. You know, there were some things there that were – that were fantastic. And there were other things, well, not so much. And I'm now back in Britain, and hey, listen, we've got problems. But it, when, when my American colleagues would say to me, oh, you've got socialized medicine, I what 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 do you mean by that? What does that mean? We have a single payer system over here. But one thing that doesn't happen over here is that people don't fail to get access based on financial issues. Also, or the color of their skin. Frankly, I'm listen. I'm sure there's unpleasant people in every country in every healthcare system. But broadly speaking, you would not see the same numbers. So, what what changes do you do you think could be enacted specifically to help African American men get better care for prostate cancer?
1: Yeah. So I think there are a lot of different issues, and you touched on some of these. Kind of where politics start to seep into the perception of healthcare and start to impact different aspects of care delivery. So I hope that um, first, you know, in some spaces, there's even a debate of disparities exist. So lowest hanging fruit would be acknowledge that disparities exist, acknowledge that a lot of these factors are driven from systems and organizations and structures rather than individual choice alone. Because I think when we talk about disparities, they are often framed in terms of the individual's characteristics, their education, their insurance, or their personal choice. As if all of the disparity is attributed to the individual rather than the conditions in which they live, which are the true social determinants of health, conditions in which people live, work, and play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: But, you know, I, I think we as doctors have a moral obligation, you know, this, this whole business of swearing the Hippocratic Oath, the Oath of Geneva, if it's to mean anything, then surely we really ought to fight for, you know, what is right and that you'll look after someone regardless of their race, religion, creed, whatever it might be. Hey, listen, in the States, I would, I used to wear a little lapel badge, the, you know, the red circle with the 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 slash through a picture of a gun right and I finally took it off because I was insulted I was abused and I was threatened with physical violence well I think you know with hundreds of thousands of people being shot and 40 odd thousand a year dying by guns uh, you know it's a health problem but it becomes a political problem so I think we've got to talk about it What, what say you?
1: I completely agree guns race multiple other factors are currently in how they interact or intersect with healthcare is a huge area of debate where unfortunately it seems like politics are driving it more than health policy yeah and i think that's where you see we're all doctors but people we have opinions you know i tell people just because we get our license or our degree doesn't mean our biases and our opinions wash away and our prior experiences don't wash away so we have everyone on that spectrum but i think if we refocus on health policy improving care for as many people as possible i think that perspective change would dramatically change how healthcare exists in the united states
0: yeah i, th- I think one of the problems is that the people who've got the you know, the really active brains and the good ideas and the drive to do something are also tend to be very, very good doctors and tend to be very, very busy and tend not to have Mm -hmm. the time to deal with politics. Um, Yeah, I I loved a bumper sticker I saw over there that said uh, nothing political is correct. uh, um, So let's switch topics a bit and talk uh, a bit about bladder cancer. You've examined racial disparities in survival rate resulting from race based differences in the management of muscle-invasive bladder cancer and how socioeconomic factors impact healthcare utilization after removal of the bladder, cystectomy. Take us on that journey, please, Sam.
1: Yeah, so this was an extension of what I was starting to learn within prostate cancer. There have been multiple studies showing disparities in prostate cancer across the country and that it may change based on where you live, but people are largely left to in the population health space. So across the country on average, there's some difference. And we saw same things in bladder cancer, but the question really was, well, what happens in the same hospital? Are there differences in care? And this was really drilling down into a place that's uncomfortable for us physicians to look, which is our own practice. And from in this study, we were able to do that. So we used a standard cancer registry data set, National Cancer Database. And we used the kind of common socioeconomic factors, insurance, education, um, people's race, household income. But we also started to cluster based on where they received their care. So at the end, we were able to see that even within the same facility or hospital with the same disease characteristics and adjusting for the same socioeconomic factors, there were still differences in care by race. And that was a topic that was not well received within urology journals, because this is right in our own space. Sure. And I remember some of the reviewer comments were even like, I work at one of these institutions. We definitely do not have this. You know, very emotional responses to an objective investigation of how we could do better. So it's interesting.
0: Mm. You wrote an article titled Health Literacy and Shared Decision-Making in Prostate Cancer Screening. So back to prostate cancer. Equality versus equity. These words, equality and equity, get used interchangeably, incorrectly, in my opinion. And I recently heard one of my favorite American commentators, Bill Maher, uh, discuss this brilliantly. And for anyone in Britain or elsewhere who doesn't know Bill Maher, M-A-H-E-R, listen to him. The guy's fantastic. So first, define the terms, then tell us about your work on health literacy, uh, equality, and equity.
1: Yeah, so it's an interesting area, and I think the standard picture that people would see if they were to Google equality versus equity is kind of a picture of people behind a fence on a baseball field. In equality, you have different people of different heights. Equality would be everyone standing on, the same, on a box that's the same height. And you'll see that some people can now see over the fence, enjoy the game with no problem. Others kind of have to step on their toes to see. And the shortest person is the farthest from the top and can't see anything. That's equality. Everyone gets the same thing without consideration of their specific characteristics. And when you start to transition to equity, you're making sure that rather than people getting the same thing, that the outcome's the same, that they can all see the baseball game. So in this picture, you'd see that some people get a little box to stand on, other people get one, other people get two. But the goal there is making sure that everyone gets over the fence rather than everyone getting the exact same thing.
0: Okay. So that's equality and equity. Talk to us about, prostate cancer screening.
1: And- yeah. So when it comes to prostate cancer screening and health literacy, it's. Moving from everyone getting the same spiel the same kind of medical jargon-laden speech about prostate cancer screening and understanding how much each patient understands in general of what is a PSA, what is prostate cancer, what's the point of PSA screening, what are the benefits and the risks. And when you start to drill things down and communicate them in a way that helps the patient, so for some people who have a higher medical health literacy, you can use terms like PSA screening you can use blood antigen for those who may not have any idea what any of that is you can say there's a little signal in the blood that helps us understand who may be at higher risk of prostate cancer but really tailoring your communications with the patient to meet them where they are right right well I mean we we need to be doing that in all interactions with patients
0: uh evaluating without being patronizing, evaluating what gets said, and, you know, having a a balanced discussion. One of my urology friends once told me that very often, it's the female partners of men who make the decision as to what treatment to select with prostate cancer. And do you have any observations about that?
1: (laughs) I completely agree. Uh, so we've seen this in multiple groups and now some efforts to help say African-American men get screened is to bring in their partners. So they're not alone in this endeavor by themselves and that the partners may be the ones who are more actively engaged with the process, understanding, asking questions where men can potentially, or anyone actually could be more passive or, Particularly within the VA, oftentimes our patients just say, you know, doc, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Yeah, for the
0: benefit of the non-American listeners, the VA, the Veterans Administration, is a healthcare care system in, in the States to cater to folks who've served in the American military. So it's an interesting system. So you've also researched racial and ethnic differences in medical student training and perceived quality of exposure to urology. Can you tell us some more about that? I mean, is this still an issue with not surely into acceptance into med school?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, across the whole process from people applying to medical school, getting accepted, completing medical school moving on to residency, fellowship training, and then becoming faculty. That whole process, every step of the way, we're losing people from different kind of varied, uh, diverse populations and backgrounds. Within urology, they've been focusing on ways to increase diversity across many different domains. And we've seen improvements in women, for example, have vast improvements over time, but for African-American trainees, we haven't seen much progress. So those observations were really driving what we tried to look at here. And it was understanding, okay, what's happening during medical school training? When are people getting exposed? And to what degree are they getting exposure early enough to get interested in urology by the time they have to select their career path towards the end of medical school.
0: Well, we're coming to the end. If you had three wishes to improve the care of the patients that you look after, Sam, what would those wishes
1: be? Wow, well, I would say uh, the first would be that we have an institution-level process to Promote equity for our patients. And that's kind of an area that we're, that's something on the wish list that we're actively working toward at UCSF. So it's exciting. Two, I would say that um, across medicine, we put the patient's health and well being first. So we dial back the distraction from politics and other biases and really focus on how can I treat the patient in front of me in the best way possible. And then three, if we could do all of this in a tighter work frame, so shorter hours, shorter days, shorter hours of the day uh, being put. But that's that's the ultimate wish. I don't know if that one will ever happen. Well,
0: it takes people with with gumption and drive to make it happen. I think you're one of those people, Sam. I'm afraid that's all we have time uh, for today. So thanks for taking the time uh, to join us today, Sam, and for everything you're doing to help patients living with urinary malignancies and also for trying to make access to treatment equitable, fair, um, and available to everyone. I've learned a lot. I'll go to bed a lot less dumb tonight. <laughs> Thank you again for having me. You're welcome. So folks, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dig into our quite extensive archives and join us again next week for yet another fascinating episode of the EMJ podcast. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sackyear, and please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.